You can count on me. You can count me in. You can make my day and give me a say. When the chips are down, know I'll be around. Happy to lend a hand to make a better land. This is Something Different This Way Comes, the You Can Count on Me edition. And that's the chorus of the song I wrote for you today. You'll get the rest after the theme song. And the introduction and some Billy Holiday. I've been preparing this week to spend an evening talking to a class at Lakehead University about money. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different. So I have been talking about money as a financial planner for a decade, over a decade now. But but this is an invitation from a friend who teaches a class to give the big picture, the essentials. And the more I prepare this boiling down, this summing up, the more I wanted to share it with you. Because... Money and the systems that organize them are important. I mean, they shape things. They, they have impact. And right now, in broad strokes, we are so much wealthier than even the wealthiest in generations past. And yet, we are so insecure. Not because of some vast evil plan. It's more a cumulative, insidious series of unfortunate decisions. But it's just money. And money is entirely up to us. It's 100% human. We can't change the laws of physics, but we can change this. And frankly, things are due for a change. I had to bring Sam in to make this point, because every once in a while I tell him something going down, and his response is so perfect. Sam, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. So do you remember... Every once in a while, I'm coming home from work, and I'll tell you about uh, somebody I know who's suddenly in a tight spot. Like, they got disabled, so they can't work anymore, and uh, and they don't have any disability insurance, so they have no income. Um, remember those kinds of conversations? Yes, and they make me angry. How angry, and why? Well, on a scale of 1 to 10 of angriness, I'd say I give it about a 50. Oh, wow. Um, because, like, like, just because you got a disability, why should you, like, not get any money? You should, like, that just, like, it, it makes me speechless. I think that's a pretty fair response. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Okay. All right, so today... In this episode, I want to talk about some of the changes I think we could easily make just to make sure everybody's okay and all those kinds of holes that people can fall through from security to not having what they need get fixed. That That's a great subject for the video. Um, sorry, podcast. For, for the podcast. Maybe some people who work at the government 
well, they will maybe hear this podcast and, like, change stuff, maybe. And maybe it'll, hopefully, this will get changed, because it needs to be. Really, it really needs to be. Okay. Thanks, Buns. I'll let you get back to your day. Okay. Um, goodbye, and do a great job on the podcast. I'll try. Are you going to take the cat with you? No, he definitely adds to the podcast, so no. Okay. Even if you can't hear him. Something different this week, I'm something. Something different, something different. That was Sam. And I think he's spot on. We're due for a change. What we have now, before we talk about changing it, let's talk about how we got here. And it all started about 80 years ago, at the end of the Second World War. You are likely to live to 80. That's our current life expectancy in Canada. But 80 years ago, it was 65. Actually, it was younger than 65, which is important. Because a lot of the things that shape our systems today were made by a generation who didn't expect us all to live this long. They, they made changes that contributed to our longer life expectancy. But as they made them, they didn't adjust or consider the fact that we're now living longer. Since that 80-year-old was born in 1942, all kinds of government policies have been introduced. Not out of the blue, because people coming back from that war said things have got to change. This is what we think is reasonable, is necessary, is important. Measures like Universal health care, OHIP, registered investment accounts to help you save for long term like RSPs, RESPs, TFSAs, government pension plans, CPP and OAS, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and a whole whack of, of laws, including a lot about workers' rights and a shopping list of tax incentives. Employment insurance started in Canada in 1940, so two years before our 80-year-old was born, but was really made what it is the year I was born, in 1971. And on the private side, insurance and investments have also changed a lot in those past eight decades that help fill gaps that people, like me and Sam, can lose sleep over. There are so many gaps. Ones that have so many of the people I work with, even the ones who have managed to miss most of the potholes themselves, and they have put together what they need to be fine, pretty much no matter what. And yet they too are scared and worried about all the people they care about. What if their, their uncle or their dad or their son or their nephew gets sick or disabled, loses a spouse, needs an expensive medication that's not covered? With so much wealth, we have a lot of insecurity to worry about. In those 80 years of your average lifespan, you start with about 25 years of dependence on your parents, starting with childcare and after-school activities, which really add up, particularly now that kids don't just walk home and play in the neighborhood until dark. And this dependence changes but continues on into early adulthood, where Canadians tend to depend on their families as a safety net, a launching pad to help with paying for an education, or they're even their first home, getting your first job, advising you as you face your first big decisions. That kind of help makes a huge difference. It's more essential than it was 80 years ago. 
when your family can't help you get that start, you have a, a significant disadvantage. Okay, so that's our first 25 years in an 80-year span. Now I have to mention that if you make it to 65, you're going to make it to 90. Odds are good. Odds are good. 50-50, you're going to make it past 90 if you live to 65. So what does that mean? It means from age 25 to age 65, you have 40 years to acquire all that you need in order to finance the rest of your life, which is probably 25 years or more. So 25 years of depending on your family, 40 years of earning, which may include being responsible for kids or parents, and should include investing enough of those earnings to finance the final 25 years of your life, and then a quarter century of living on whatever your retirement treasury adds up to be. What could possibly go wrong? And hey, you say, what about all those measures you were listing off like an alphabet soup, all these things that were put in place to make sure everybody would be okay? All those government measures were never intended to make sure that everyone's okay. They're intended to help. That's all they ever aim to do. Rich relations give crust of bread and such. You can help yourself, but please don't take too much. There's that Billie Holiday song, I promised you. It's my theme song today for what's got to change. But the assumption of all these helpful programs that will do a lot on our own is, frankly, a surprise to many of us. Something you might wish you understood better sooner when it does finally add up. I am thinking of a certain sleepless night in my late 30s when it all added up for me. But here's the basic math. Old Age Security, OAS. It covers about 10% of the average person's salary. That's about 600 bucks a month that you'll get starting at age 65 if you're considered Canadian enough, and most of us are. And then you have CPP. CPP is not the same for everybody. It's tailored to you, how much you put into it. It's a pension plan. And how much you put into it's topped at what is considered the average income of Canadians in, in that given year. That, that's changed recently. But for most of us, uh, although if you put in the maximum for all of the 40 years that you earn money, you could get about you know, $1,300 a month in retirement from your CPP, the average Canadian gets around $700 a month. Some get less, and some get more. So together, CPP and OAS only aim to replace about 25 to 30% of your average earnings over those 40 years. The intention was never that that would be enough, that you could go from earning, you know, say, $4,000 a month that you take home, dropping to about $1,500 a month after taxes. That's not ever considered to have been doable. But then how are you going to save enough for 25 more years? I mean, 25 is more than half of 40. Are you supposed to be putting away half your money in order to afford it? And what if things keep getting more expensive through retirement? On top of that, even if you're doing all that, what could possibly go wrong? There's those holes that Sammy was talking about that that really bug me when I see them happen. Our universal health care has some gaping holes, dentistry, mental health care, physical therapies. Child care is not something everybody shares equally. To become a parent is a really expensive commitment that not everybody can meet 
there's something wrong with that. Programs we have put in place that are supposed to help are really barricaded. They're really burdened with limitations and controls and, frankly, a sort of shaming. And it makes them both more expensive, you know, all of that building of fences and gates and proactive ensuring that only the most worthy receive it and those able to get over all the barricades. But it's also less effective. going to take a brief pause here to talk about compounding interest. Because compounding is uh, it's counterintuitive to us mere humans. It boggles our brains a wee bit. We need a moment to wrap our heads around it. And um, here's an image that might help. If you're as old as me, perhaps you remember a commercial for a shampoo that had someone urging you to tell two friends. And the image would then shift from one box with a face in it to three boxes, each with a face in it, you and your two friends. And then they tell two friends, four more boxes. And then they tell two friends, eight more boxes, until the screen was crowded with boxes full of heads of shiny, clean, recently shampooed hair. It takes time for interest to compound like that longer than our brains really are comfortable with. So between you telling two friends and you finding out that them telling friends has in turn led to a lot of people knowing that you never spoke to personally, and the space with all the boxes in it has so many boxes in it, you, you can't even see that there's dots in the middle of the boxes, mind you, how shiny and clear the hair is. In short, the compounding effect of not increasing incomes, like disability insurance or welfare, has turned what started as help into more of a punishment, one that's very expensive to run. No one gets disabled so they can make money without earning. That is a, a sort of premise at the base, a lot of these measures, and I think it is a deeply false one. I think of all the people who simply will not retire because they need something to do somewhere where they are valued, where, where they're contributing, and, and they don't retire until they find that job outside of the earning world often. They need to care for somebody, their grandkids or their mom, or, or they found a volunteer organization that could really do with their expertise and celebrates the efforts that they bring to the table. People are hardwired to contribute. They really, really are. And I think the messaging of a lot of the programs we put in place to help people when they need additional income, that, that shames them for that need and makes it really hard to still at least do something without losing that necessary income, is one of the reasons why so many disabilities are extended as they turn from whatever first got you away from your earning job into mental health related to distress and depression that extends the claim. You can help yourself, but please don't take too much. Oh, mama may have, papa may have, but God bless the child who's got his own, who's got his own. There has been compounding interest eating away at that starting place survivors of the Second World War started out from. 
when they transformed our country through that alphabet soup of government initiatives. We, as a country, invested in affordable housing then. The thought was that every young man should be able to afford a house with a car and a yard, their wife never needing to work, their kids able to go to university. And unlike their parents, who would have to move in with family if they could no longer manage on their own, grandma in the kitchen, handicapped uncle on the porch, this is kind of when this idea really took root that people should remain independent their whole life long, never have to rely on their kids financially. But compound interest and a series of unfortunate decisions has slipped that rug out from under us over the 80 years of our friend's lifetime. Those houses that government subsidies made affordable 80 years ago have grown so expensive the young can't afford them, generally without family help. The old who held on to that house since it was affordable all those decades ago now often can't afford to maintain it. And so many of the middle-aged rely on the cheap debt that their house secures for them, so much so that it's very common to go into retirement with a mortgage, if you can afford to retire at all. Then there's divorce, which compounds that one-man, one-house math dramatically in one fell swoop. Something different this way comes, something different this way comes, something different this way comes, something different this way comes. Today, this moment in time, is like that time after the Second World War 80 years ago. This is a time of transformative change. We will change this world as profoundly as they did, as we shift our habits and systems and communities away from fossil fuel dependence towards wild weather resilience, and as we care for the compounding numbers of wild weather refugees. We will change this world again. The question is, how good a job of it will we do if we wait until we're forced? This is a global transformation. It is in our hands. What do we want it to look like? Billie Holiday wrote God Bless the Child in 1941. It was a hit the year our 80-year-old was born. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the Bible says, and it still is news. Mm. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child who's got his own, who's got his own. It actually says that in the Bible twice. The first, in Matthew's chapter 25, the 29th, the parable of the talents, it's at the end. It says, For unto everyone that hath shall be given, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. Ugh, that's pretty harsh. Kind of scary. But then again, faith is not easy or comfortable, and neither is life. It's not easy, comfortable, or really simple to wrap our heads around. But like everything, that line, 
needs its context. With apologies, this is just how this teaching speaks to my heart. I'm no theologian, not a scholar. I'm just a woman with a Bible on her shelf. So this is how I would explain this to Ben and Sam. This line is from when Matthew is sharing the stories that Jesus told people as he walked all over the place, trusting that people would feed and shelter him and his disciples and listen to his answers when they asked him questions. These were his stories of teaching. And the question he was asked was, what signs of the end of the world should we look for? And how can we be among those who do live forever when the world comes to its end? Because the Bible promised that those who believe will have eternal life even after their death. So Jesus tells many stories in this section of the Bible, and Matthew is sharing them one after the other, that all add up to, for me, that how to do right is not a set-and-forget-it question. It's not something you just learn and consider learned. It's bigger than we can really understand. So we need to really work to keep correcting ourselves and keep moving closer to the intentions of the directions that were given in the Bible and in the words of the Bible, especially as we move farther and farther away from the time that those stories were first told. Our perspective is so different. So let's start with this parable of the talents that that line concludes. A Lord was traveling. He stopped at a place that was new to him and told three of his servants to stay there while he traveled on. He gave them each some money, which are here called talents. And he said he'd be back, though he was not sure when. He didn't give them each equal amounts of money, but he gave them each a different amount according to how well he thought they would be able to make use of them. He gave four to one, two to another, and only one to the third. And the first two, with larger sums of money, they went out and spent it, buying and trading, looking to see what was needed and what was valued, participating in the economy of the community that they were visiting. But the third servant was afraid. He was afraid of losing this money trusted to him. He was afraid of his boss. He kept thinking of the times his boss had judged those around him in ways he didn't understand, and he thought to himself, This boss of mine, he's tough. He reaps harvest where he has not sowed the seeds. He gathers food where he has not cared for the harvest. This guy was very worried about what the boss would do should he lose the money. And he was not willing to risk spending it to help someone start a business or to buy something he figured someone else would be happy to buy from him and expect to profit by these sorts of activities. He was worried, what if they didn't work out? And he didn't have a dollar. He didn't have a talent to give back when he was asked. So he took his talent and he buried it to be sure it would be safe. Well, it turned out that master was gone for a long time. And when he returned, the two who had spent and traded the money left with them had doubled the amount initially entrusted to them. And their boss was delighted. He gave them promotions and praise. He let them keep all that money, and he even gave them more. Then the careful guy. Well, he ran out, he dug up his talent, and he gave it back to his boss, safe and sound. But the boss was not happy with him. He was furious with the one who'd buried the talent in order to be sure to protect it. He fired him, he shamed him, he took that once buried money, and he gave it to the other two and said, For unto each one that hath, shall be given, and shall have abundance. But from him that hath not, 
shall be taken away even that which he hath. There was money involved, but what he's talking about here is faith. You have to risk things. You have to take part in the community that you are a part of. You have to trust people, and you have to trust yourself that if there's something you can do, you should be doing it. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the Bible says, and it still is news. Oh, that faith that they showed, that courage, that initiative, that is what got them back returns of more trust, more money, and probably more courage too. Because once you've been successful, it's easier to be brave. I think that's how community is built, on faith in one another, on courage to propose a welcome change and invest in it. And I think the road to hell is paved with caution. Those growing holes in our systems of care and support, health care systems, income protection systems, education systems, home and food security, those are rooted in efforts to not lose what we have to bury our values so they cannot possibly be lost, and to deprive ourselves from the potential to make the most of them. Most civilizations, most communities, through all of human history, have offered shelter, ensured food to everybody in that community. To dare not to lend money, for instance, to people who have no other way to start a business or get through a tight stretch. Right now, banks' lending practices are only to those who have savings enough to be able to pay for it themselves or proof of a solid income enough to be a really safe bet they will pay it back. That is not meeting the needs of the entire community. I'm not saying we invented these money-grasping, fear-based ways, but I am saying we can change them. We can afford to change them. In fact, we can't really afford not to. The theme of this season is what good looks like. And good looks like making sure everyone is okay. Even before calamity sweeps all our possessions away. There is a seed of bounty in that goal. Science shows that when people are trusted and secure, they do more. They innovate, they share, they care for others. Basic income trials and programs thus far keep proving this over and over, Serbs proved this. So many use that stability of income to not only stay home as asked, but to get an education, to help care for someone, or both. Microloans, loans to people who have no security, who have no house you can possess and sell if the mortgage is foreclosed. Microloans are becoming a thing, even in big investment firms, because the proof has gotten just too compelling that, that a little tiny bit of money with no credit score, no net worth in the borrower to safely predict their success based on past performance is actually a really low risk. Almost everybody pays it back and grow that seed of faith, that little bit of money, into businesses that serve their community, that help people. They can even become economic wellsprings, such that even the distant money managers on Bay Street are having a hard time ignoring this science, and they're starting to finance 
micro-loan programs is the part of it's all sizes of financial products. It's an element in there because the evidence keeps piling up. And yet we lack that willingness to have faith in so many of our systems. And I think that's got to change. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the Bible says, and it still is news. So I said it's twice in the Bible, that line. Eerily the same in the book of St. Luke, chapter 8, verse 18. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. This is from the parable of the sower, where in the spring a farmer throws seeds, hither and yon, and, and when the seeds land in rich warm earth, it springs up green and strong and resilient. When it lands on dry bare rocks, it doesn't germinate at all. And when it lands on thin soil, it might spring up, but it'll die out the first whiff of trouble. And what Jesus explains is these seeds are the seeds of faith, and those are words. And not everyone can hear the words, or hear them right, or keep on living by them. Life's temptations calls them astray. He says, take heed, therefore, how you hear. So if you, if you want to stare at these words for permission to punish the sick for their illness or judge the poor for their poverty or scorn the uneducated for their lack of scholarship, but really, clearly, it is a call to do the exact opposite. I mean, just a few verses farther on in that same chapter of the Bible, he talk about the most blessed in the end are those the most burdened in life. And when we care, when we help, Share our food so none are hungry. Heal the sick and wounded so none are alone or forgotten. Visit and respect the imprisoned and the judged. Welcome total strangers into our homes and our communities to give them our clothes to wear, to shelter them, to break what little food we have and share it with them. Those are the actions of people walking as directed by the Bible, walking in the grace of God. That's the walk I'd like to see us talk. Now, here's the whole song. From an era I think we are ready to leave that much more behind. From 1941 by Billie Holiday. Them that's got shall get. Them that's not shall lose. So the Bible says, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. Yes, the strong get smart. While the weak ones fade, empty pockets don't ever make the grade. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. 
money, you've got lots of friends crowding round the door. But money's gone and spending ends, they don't come round no more. Rich relations give crust of bread and such you can help yourself but please don't take too much oh mama may have papa may have but god bless the child that's got his own that's got his own so I told you last week to tune in this week for, for a show about capital and income, although I've since renamed it Count Me In. So far, I have talked a lot about social capital and socially supported income. But now I want to talk about pure old capital and income. Capitalism is a button word. I mean, it triggers a bunch of emotional responses. It kind of shuts down our brain and can be used as a catch-all in many circles for how profit can trump people in really terrible ways. But capital is something we have that we value. In capitalism, it's something we value because it generates income for us. How is that possible? Okay, well... Think of any 19th century novel you've ever read or watched a movie version of, like a Jane Austen, even Tolstoy. And they talk about how much income a person has. And they're not talking salary. They're talking profit from that person's property, from their capital. Likely land, a farm, maybe factories or mills, places they own, the profits of which they use to pay the people who work there, cover the cost of running the place, and then anything more that is netted, any profit, that is their income. The capital's the farm, the factory, the flour mill, even the servants. The income is their profit as owner. Capital that generates that kind of profit takes a while to build up, generally, and that's why most people who have it inherited it. Although some companies can go from a squiggle of an idea to an income-generating profit machine in pretty short order. That's a bit of a miracle every time it happens. Compare that sort of income to your income in retirement. That 65% drop from what you make while working to what government pensions add up to in that last quarter century of your life. Like I mentioned before, if you tried to save enough, let's say in jars in the backyard, for example, over 40 years, to last 25 years, you'd need to save about half of what you make, maybe more. Investing is allowing you to keep up with inflation without having to outsmart it because you get to buy capital. You buy a slice of a company that's generating income. It's profitable. You get to become an owner of a share of an established business that's already generating profit. Most of us are business owners if we have any kind of investments at all or contribute to a pension plan in any way, shape, or form. As it's those are the companies and their profits that's driving inflation, your wealth and income should keep up. No problem. And if you go back to that shampoo commercial, 
if instead of spending the income your capital is earning for you, you reinvest it and buy more capital, you send your two friends back into the market to make two more new friends each, at first it won't look like much until suddenly your investments have made you more than you ever invested. You've doubled your money, like those two servants in this parable of the talents. And if you keep doing that long enough, it, it will double again. Suddenly you can manage to finance that quarter century by investing only 20% of what you earn over your 40 years of earning income, maybe even 18. But let's get back to those 19th century novels. Jane Austen in particular comes to mind, Sense and Sensibility. In the setup for how the Dashwood family went from plenty to poverty, the brother and his wife talk themselves into keeping so much of their inheritance and sharing so little with his father's second wife and four daughters. Think of those farms and mills and factories whose profits equals their owner's income and the temptation to minimize costs like maintenance, safety measures, salaries, to maximize profits. It's there. There is a sea change going on. People are figuring out how to track and value a company not just by the profits it most recently paid out to its owners, but by the way it does business. And they're seeing that when you look at that bigger picture, people doing business in a way that cares for people, that builds the value of property, that's where the future lies. That's where security is. That's where plenty is actually to be found. And so this broader sense of what you want to measure in choosing what companies to invest in is revolutionizing the world of investments. Informing that revolution is proof that pinching the penny to maximize profits in the short term tends to pay for that chintziness in pretty short order. Although the when of the crash is hard to precisely predict, it is predictable and it's getting harder to ignore that fact. I'm referencing here Mark Carney's book, Values, and the work of the Smart Prosperity Institute at the University of Ottawa, also of the Responsible Investing Association of Canada. I could go on. It's a rabbit hole I fall into regularly, but I will instead sum it up to say, this shit is real. The darkness at the heart of our current economic system is not capital. It's colonialism. Businesses, companies... In and of themselves, they're key to our happiness and success. I'm a big fan of business owners, at least the ones who start and steer them right at the front lines. Business is a commercial service provision, problem solving, big fan. But things can go wrong when people, land, and community get exploited instead of built up by business. And its tendency to try to control rather than trust, to try to focus on short-term profit, rather than sustainable, positive growth of people and our planet. That is the point. It's an easy one to embrace from the front lines, but an easy one to lose sight of the farther you are from those front lines. talk here about the tragedy of the commons which by the way is not actually something that happened 
it is referenced in so many economic conversations and, and reference books. But in fact, it was invented by a British economist at the height of the British Empire, trying to illustrate why he thought people could not and should not be trusted to manage their own commons. The landed community managed in common to graze animals or gather food or, or gather for festivities. The economist's premise was that when left to themselves, people will exhaust a shared resource. So they need to be managed, to be controlled from afar. The people and their commons. It is an oft-cited truism, but it's not true. In fact, anthropologists have tried to prove this truism time after time, and they keep finding out the opposite is true. People that manage the spaces they live in do an amazing job of it. When they live close to the land, when they directly share in it and directly use it for food, fun, festivals, whatever, they tend to actually build it up, to care for it so well and reactively and carefully that it grows richer and stronger for that timely and caring attention. It's an unpredictable management. It's tailored and tweaked often. It's kind of done on the run as communities notice improvements that can be made and actively respond to differences in weather, other variations. But people are really good at managing their commons when they're right there on the spot talking to one another and have the power to make change. However, the commons of the British Isles were overexploited and ruined when they were enclosed, when they were taken away from the management of the people who lived there and managed from afar by the wealthy. The tragedy of the commons is that we have come to believe that invented tale as an excuse for excessive control from a distance and for an extractive economy. How much profit can I pull out of this production as opposed to how well am I building it and how well is it meeting its ultimate goal, which is to serve human needs and build our human home our planet, so it is ever stronger, wealthier, more resilient. You can count on me, you can count me in, you can make my day and give me a say. When the chips are down, no, I'll be around, happy to lend a hand to build a better I have one more wonderful true story to share with you before I debut this episode's song in full. I found it in another Rutger Bregman book, Utopia for Realists, a piece of history I'd never heard before, even though it's about my field, the one I work in at my day job as a financial planner, because it barely caused a ripple when it happened in 1970. But when it happened, the predictions were dire. Life was expected to come to a standstill when Ireland's 7,000 bank employees went on strike. After all, just a few years earlier, when garbage collectors in New York City threatened to strike, leaders had scoffed. What did those lowly workers matter? And bankers? Now that is essential stuff. Well, you can see where this is going. Garbage strikes work. The essentialness of that labor is quite quickly apparent. But the bankers strike in Ireland, <laughs> well, it went on for months, there were no bank loans, there were no banks to cash your paycheck, and yet nobody much missed it. Life went on as usual. The economy even grew. People cashed their checks, 
at the neighborhood pub where they were known. They negotiated loans between one another within that same neighborhood where they were known and had relationships they knew well and could rely on. Social capital. It's our secret sauce. And luckily we can do change. This is money. It's 100% ours to make and manage and change. And we're not wage slaves. Not really. We are shareholders. We own the capital. We are citizens. We choose our leadership. We are valued workers. We inform and can shape our workplaces. I didn't think I would write a song this week. It was a busy week. And I did know I already wanted to sing it, Billie Holiday. But a song found me anyway. <laughs> Here you go. You can count on me. You can count me in. You can make my day. Let me have a say. When the chips are down, no, I'll be around. Happy to lend a hand to build a better land. Better because no one is hungry. Better because no one is alone. Better because no one is homeless or unheard or missing the medicine they need or the care they deserve. No. We're too smart for that. We're too good for that. We know how to build our world right. Yes, we're too smart for that. Too good for that. We know how to build our world right. You can count on me. You can count me in. You can make my day. Let me have a say. When the chips are down, no one be around. Happy to lend a hand to build a better land. Better because everyone is valued. Better because everyone is heard. Better because everyone is sheltered and cared for and fed. You can count on me. You can count me in. You can make my day. Let me have a say. When the chips are down, no, I'll be around. Happy to lend a hand to build a better land. So I think as we reboot our systems globally, financially, we can figure out how to support and reward small businesses, minimize the tripping hazards, pool shared needs to make them more easily met, supercharge the rebuilding of our neighborhood business hubs, where the owners know their customers, live among them, can tailor products and services nimbly to meet specific needs, and minimize vulnerability to current supply chains that are vulnerable to transport challenges in this time of climate chaos, and to bad choices rooted in our legacy of colonialism and planetary exploitation, extraction-based economies. More local autonomy. Greater regional economic and energy independence. That's the way to go. But here's the last question. What will we have to give up to afford this broad investment in the security and happiness of every single person? 
Now, personally, I have a niggly feeling that as soon as we give everybody the basics, we'll get back so much more, we'll be more than fine. More than fine. But if you want to give something up, I have a suggestion. I suggest we maximize our opportunities to spend less time, money, and attention on fear. On papering the files so if you get sued, you won't lose. On administering the application so only those who need it most get it. You know what I'm talking about. Compliance, due diligence, best practice things you do. I know you do them. We all do them. And they make you feel kind of gross untrusted, unheard, unknown, or that nobody out there can be trusted, should be listened to, or would you want to know? Muzzled, shackled, boxed in. Can you tell I'm up to here with this kind of stuff? Okay, they're all over the place, but here's an example. When Ben was in junior kindergarten, he was three when he started junior kindergarten, but his teachers could not give him a hug they could not snuggle him or any of the children at story time for fear of inappropriate touching scandals. He was three. There were two teachers in that room. The cost of subjecting a three-year-old to six hours a day without physical affection way outweighs the benefits of lessening the risk of inappropriate touching in this case, in my very strong opinion. There are so many ways that we invest in fear and prevention and starve our expectations and opportunities for trust, faith, and communication to flourish. Here's another problem with investing deeply in preventative measures and systems that any mother can tell you. Whenever you tell someone, do not do so-and-so, all the child hears is, do so-and-so. The first word disappears between your mouth and their ear. All the kid hears is the end of the sentence. The odds that they then go and do so-and-so just went up astronomically. Pay attention to the end of every sentence that starts with don't. That's my word of advice as a mom. And, and it informs my thought that all these preventative measures are actually encouraging bad decisions are telling us, this is what everyone's doing. That's what's generally done. That's what's expected of us. All these ridiculous rules can trigger us like a good challenge, get us thinking more about how to weave around and outsmart them than why we might want to uphold them. But even more than that, I think, these fear-first systems leave us discouraged, silenced, distrusted, diminished. Fear does make you freeze, fight, or flee, none of which maximize the potential of people, and we need maximum people potential right now. The cost of this investment in prevention and policing and compliance and proof of compliance with these fear-rooted rules is so much greater than is reasonable to the risk. Call me Pollyanna, but Pollyanna got shit done. She transformed her community one perky assumption of good intention at a time, and I think expectation punches way above its weight. Prevention and preventative judgment punches way below. It doesn't work well. In fact, it works badly. And if we stop spending so much time documenting, verifying, applying, and reviewing, and analyzing risk, if we just stepped right over that fear-based barricade and dare to trust every way 
and every opportunity we get, dare to expect people to try their best, learn from their mistakes, help figure things out and make things better. I think we would reap what we sow. We would reap so much more of people's best. We'd learn so much more, figure out so many things faster, make so many things better. Basic income, the start. Local food production, affordable housing, community spaces, public transit, local energy production, and storage. That's what good looks like. We can wait until a climate crisis weather tragedy sweeps away what we have and then rebuild better, or we can own the future we see heading our way. We can start packing and building, documenting what we'll lose but want to cherish and remember, learn, solve, work together, and save as much as we can. You can count on me, you can count me in. You can make my day and give me a say. When the chips are down, know I'll be around. Happy to lend a hand and build a better land. This is the Count Me In edition of Something Different This Way Comes. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed writing, composing, recording, and sharing this podcast. If it made you hopeful, if it made you think, if you'd like to help me pay for some of my expenses, I detail them all, and I thank everyone who pitches in on my website, www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. There you can click the GoFundMe button on the front page and become a patron. I also share the script, everything I reference. You can sign up for a weekly newsletter there, too. And next week, I hope you come back. I'm going to indulge in some deep imagining of what good might look like, starting with an intro to owning an electric car right here in Thunder Bay in conversation with local climate activist Paul Berger. Join me next Tuesday. Something different this way comes something Something different Something different Something different this way comes something Something different Something different